If you're hearing this, it means that you're subscribed to the public podcast feed and only hearing the first half of the conversation. If you'd like to listen to the full episode and support the podcast, consider becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to the Howl in the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. Howl in the Wilderness features deep and insightful conversations with renegade artists, philosophers, psychologists, and spiritual teachers who are working on the edge of dominant culture to recover and revive soul in people and the planet. On this episode, I speak with author, recovery activist, and researcher Piers Kanuka about reimagining addiction, recovery, and community in the 21st century. If you'd like to support the podcast, consider joining the pack over at patreon.com forward slash Howl in the Wilderness. Thanks for listening. Well, I'm here with Piers Kanuka. Piers, it's really good to see you, man. Um, so good to be here. You're in a different setting than I, I'm normally used to seeing you on the Resistance Recovery podcast recordings, uh, where you're kind of kicking back in your office chair, which I really liked the uh, kind of casual nature of how you did conversations with people. It's nice to watch and listen to. I'll try not to be too fun. <laughs> yes, you could slouch a bit. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, well, just a little bit of background for people listening. I think I was I was thinking this morning, like, how did I become aware of Piers's work? And I think it was probably when I was introduced to Robert Sardello through Thomas Moore and started to check him out. And you had done a series of conversations with Robert on your resistance recovery podcast. And like it was immediate. 
um, I was like, okay, here's a kindred soul. He, this guy's referencing Hillman, uh, Rudolf Steiner, esoteric Christianity is all about the heart. Uh, and yeah, so I really felt like a, a kinship with you. And um, we had a kind of casual conversation to get to know each other a while back. And um, the kind of admiration just continues. I keep an eye on what you're doing with resistance recovery. And uh, I just, I love what you put out and um, the way you question the status quo around uh, therapy and recovery work. Um, yeah. So lots of appreciation from my side. Well, thank you. Thank you. The feeling is mutual. Well, that means a lot. Thank you. Yeah, you're kind of like an older brother or a spiritual uncle or something. That's the way I think of you. Yeah, I get that a lot. It just makes me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> Embrace it, man. Embrace it. You know, it's not uh, not elder elderhood yet, but like spiritual uncles. I like to have those, you know, guys who are yeah. like 10, 10 or 15 years older or something like that, you know. Um, well, I am turning 60 this year, so as far as I'm concerned... I'm elder. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if you could start just by talking a little bit about your background, like how you came to get involved in recovery work. Um, well, I, you know, I started doing drugs in 1974. Yeah, so. I was born. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, between that and recovery, which started... 1994 and then going pro um you know it's pretty much been my wheelhouse my whole life and i've watched a lot of things change and as i as i kind of moved through that i would i encountered a series of questions were raised and so pretty much it was sort of trying to hunt down answers to those questions that generated all the movement Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what were some of those initial questions that uh, you encountered? Well, you know, um, I always knew from for years before I got clean that it would be a spiritual thing, that if I got better, it would have to be spiritual. And lo and behold, that proved to be true. Um, so I was... Um, I was found by this man named Don Pritz, who's since deceased. And in the world of the 12 steps, I can use his last name because he's passed over. And when I met him, it became very clear to me that there was a distinction between people who did the 12 steps and the rank and file members of AA. And that the process of the 12 steps around issues like surrender, inventory, confession, restitution, prayer, meditation, service, that constellation of spiritual practices, you know, was tremendous efficacy. And yet maybe 5% of the people do them, if that. So my first question, of course, is why don't people do that? Um, and that question was kind of hard to answer. I'm not sure I've fully answered it. There's a lot of provisional answers. But one of the things that became evident shortly after that was, why does psychiatry and medicine dominate this treatment house when they have literally nothing to show for it? 
And that when I say in, term, in terms of results, you mean, yeah, they have no results. Yeah. Nothing. And of course, that question you can really get investigative on. Um, so that would eventually lead me to people like Robert Whitaker and you know, history of psychiatry and altogether too much knowledge about shenanigans there. Um, but then eventually I, I started seeing a lot of what I, what a lot of reactionary tendencies in the world of recovery, meaning the recovery was always imagined as a kind of, uh, even, even in the presence of some spiritual modalities, it was imagined as becoming well-adjusted. And that always rang hollow because become well-adjusted to what? You know, and that eventually would lead me to more of this broader social context. Apparently, Bruce Alexander's done so much. Um, but along the way, you know, there were explorations and consequences around psychedelics. There were... Um, through Sardello and then and Jung and Hillman, you know, an understanding of soul and depth and interiority and how that is so um, been banished from the world in a lot of ways. So a lot of things just started coalescing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, what was the impetus behind resistance recovery? I mean, it's a kind of provocative name, right? So... What are you uh, resisting? Um, resisting almost every narrative out there. You know, that um, that addiction is a disease, for example, or that uh, psychiatry and big pharma are the solution to that disease. Or, you know, the bigger things to resist is the sort of implicit idea that addiction is just a hazard of being human. And, you know, both Alexander and some Native American activists, the uh, ones I met came out of this movement called White Bison. They both said, no, addiction is not ubiquitous and in intact indigenous cultures before colonialization, there was no addiction. You know, and so these are, those are big, big, big things that never get talked about. You know, you don't learn about them in graduate school most of those ideas don't get discussed in recovery settings. So try to make a forum where at least some of those ideas got out there. Mm. And just in terms of uh, credentials, uh, I think you've got a degree in psychology, right? I've got master's degrees in psychology, counseling psychology and theological studies too. And then I have, um, I have a yoga cert at 200 hours. And, and a few, and a few, uh, you know, certs that I got from working with Robert Sardello, one in particular called Heart Initiation, which was, that was life changing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you've been uh, kind of through the mainstream training and all of that. Uh, yeah. So uh, when did you come across Bruce Alexander's work? Because you're the one who told me about him and... Um, so he's uh, he's a Canadian professor, I think, at uh, Simon Fraser University out here in British Columbia, or was, uh, and um, psychologist, psychiatrist, psychologist, psychologist. Okay, 
I was surprised I had never heard of him actually, because uh, he was talking about things that I think um, like maybe Gabor Mate is now coming around to, you know, with his latest book, The Myth of Normal, where he's starting to put more focus on the the Sikh society uh, that is kind of the breeding ground for addiction. But uh, it seems like Bruce has been kind of uh, talking about that for quite a while with his yeah. dislocation theory, which when I started to read uh, his writing on dislocation theory, it really hit home with a lot of things that I've been thinking about and writing about lately. So when did you come across his work? And I wonder if you could give us like an overview of dislocation theory. It is just one of those weird ass things. I came across his work by perusing the books in Barnes and Noble. <laughs> and I see this book and I'm, it's this big fat book called The Globalization of Addiction. And I've been kind of uh, engaged in these critiques on globalization and neoliberalism for a while. Although I don't know that I was, I was kind of putting it together with addiction, but not, not real well. And so I pick up the book, and of course, I'm completely um, mesmerized. So Alexander, you know, you're right, he's been at it forever. And he initially, uh, he's not an addict, and he's not a particularly spiritual person. He identifies as an agnostic. Um, but he, um, he, he got initial fame for this rat park experiment that he did yeah, years ago. And that is sort of the, the groundwork for what will become dislocation theory, where he shows that, you know, there's this horrible, this widely replicated uh, experiment, replicated to this day, where you put a rat in a cage, and you hang a dispenser of water, and you hang a dispenser of, li dispenser of liquid morphine, and lo and behold, the rat will come to just drink morphine all the time, and will eventually prefer it to food, and so on and so on. And, you know, Bruce was pretty young then, but he said, this is just straight up bias confirmation. I mean, they're just trying to prove how addictive morphine is. And so he created a rat park to test the idea that if you put rats in a, in a healthy, safe environment, they may do other things. And <laughs> I, first of all, I just love rat park. You know, I, I get an image in my mind immediately <laughs> of like, all these little things for rats to do, like a little playground yeah. for rats and for them yeah. to hang out by, by the wall. <laughs> eat food, have sex, play with colored toys. Yeah. And so he built the rat park and, I mean, he found And the it. result was that most of the rats opted for the water and even the ones that imbibed in the morphine that he, uh, Alexander, you know, jokingly called the partier rats, you know, none of them got strung out. And they just they used morphine recreationally. Yeah, they were rec they were Carl Hart rats. <laughs> and uh, he um, he got fame for that initially, but the funding dried up very quickly. And the results of the study kind of went on the shelf for decades. And they only got pulled down as a result of how bad uh, the opioid epidemic became. Some researchers were like, you know, hey, wait a minute, check this out. Um, so what Alexander would do is he would take that, that model and he would apply it to human culture and society, um, largely by studying anthropology and history. And what he discovers, and I don't think it's up for debate, is that 
intact indigenous cultures, for one, don't have diction. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, even cultures like he, he one of part of the book he writes about the um, the Highland Scots, you know, the the well, Gibson and the skirt people. Um, what is that? Um, <laughs> you know, Highlanders. You know, the Highlanders, and he said, he said they would write about him back in their time, and they say, "Riot is drinking," and they did. They drank, they drank heavily, but there was nothing resembling alcohol, meaning drinking to the point where people, you know, advocated their responsibilities to one another, and the society fell apart. So even even drunkenness or what looks like, you know, substance abuse. If the culture is intact and meaningful and taking care of everyone, there's no addiction. It's brilliant, you know, brilliant, brilliant research and so provocative and still not read. And I think, I think your articles from a Delic culture really speak to something where we are much more open to a narrative around personal trauma that's messing up my life versus a a culture, a sick culture that's just generating the present trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, very, very interesting. Yeah. Um, I think we could probably say too that it's not only intact indigenous cultures, but um cultures where there's a lot of uh social bonding shared values yes um probably like shared spiritual beliefs i'm trying to think of the name of uh uh it's like a i think a christian cult in the states it's one of the few blue zones uh where the people are the happiest and healthiest and and longest lifespan you're thinking of um seventh-day adventist yeah probably yeah yeah they, they national geographic actually did a thing on different groups with longevity and they were one of them yeah, yeah. again i mean not indigenous kind of a, a colonial uh, culture um but same results right oh yeah and if you even if you do this if you google rates of addiction internationally you'll get some color-coded map that will show that America, a little bit of Western Europe, Canada, Australia, Russia, far more addicted than the rest of the world. So rates of addiction are much higher in those places than in the narco states of Mexico, Colombia, and uh, Afghanistan. Hmm. Or in places like Haiti, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, rates of addiction are still higher here. Hmm. So there's something going on that can't quite exactly be explained in terms of poverty or just uh, intact indigenous traditions, but there's something around social cohesion and meaning. Sardello is rather brilliant on this because he says this, he says, psychology only appears in the absence of cosmology. Mm -hmm. Right. Which is basically what you were saying. You know, when we have no narrative of where we came from, why we're here, where we're going, who these beings are that we're surrounded by, we're the dead, yada, 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 then then we start having psychological problems that make psychology necessary. 
Yeah, it's like uh, Carl Jung said, the gods have become diseases. Like everything's been internalized. And, and like this is wrapped up with uh, neoliberalism too. Like I think you did a podcast on that, uh, that um, with another psychologist or psychotherapist who'd written about this. And again, not something that enough people talk about. No, you know? no, it's 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 really hard to get people engaged in. Now, I, I do it with my clients in group settings, and I've been doing it for years now. And it, it's very therapeutic because it gives them a way of exploring their lives. It gets out of this, um, it was the sexual assault of my mom and blah, blah, blah. And it's, you know, really shows that mind rules in a myriad of now, how do you balance that? Because that could easily be used in a way to um, kind of uh, uh, put the responsibility or the causal relationship onto now, not just mom and dad, but now it's society. Yeah. And and that's my kind of fear around how, like, you know, Gabor Mate, he's a really, um, he's a really good synthesizer of ideas, I think, but I find he's often too reductive for my taste. And that gets picked up by the masses because um, it sounds really good and it sounds really clear and authoritative. And it's like, I can put my kind of belief in that, my faith in him. Uh, now, when he's talking about, you know, sick society being the cause of sick individuals and addiction being one of the ways to cope with that, I, I fear that it's just going to be now, um, yeah, taking the the blame from mom and dad. Now we put it on society uh so how do you balance that uh, you know kind of larger perspective on on why we get sick why we get addicted um versus the personal responsibility piece yeah so that is the deep 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 tension in there um and it needs to be teased out okay so on the one hand like for instance i i had a straight up numinous experience well i had several but there was one that was pivotal in my recovery third step and i've never been the same transcendent experience uh completely you know kairos moment everything was different now. But because i was in an aa culture i was groomed to tell my story in such a way that sounded like this um I grew up upper middle class. Both my parents were educated. They were married for 50 years before my mom died. Never wanted for everything, anything. The expectation is that I would go to college, yada, yada, yada. And then somewhere around sixth grade, I started hanging out with these knuckle corner. And, but when you really unpack that, there's a bunch there that doesn't make sense because you know, an 11-year-old boy who suddenly wants to get high every chance he can get, there's got to be something wrong with that. There's something wrong there. Plus, question about agency of an 11-year-old. You know, what kind of choice am I really making? Um, and then, and then this, this will swing the pendulum towards the trauma. I can say that dislocation in my childhood was... Um, you know, growing up in the 60s on Capitol Hill, you know, politically and racially charged, uh, violence, sexual abuse, major uh, undiagnosed something with my mother. She was pretty disturbed. 
And right, so now the pendulum swings back towards towards the sort of trauma thing. But of course, what you can see if you work with enough addicts is they usually have some family resemblance there. Meaning maybe you came from an affluent family where you never saw your father, or maybe you uh, were unchaperoned like I was. And so you got all into, you know, pornography and drugs and all that when you were young. There's, there's this sort of family resemblance to that, which I think speaks to the society. So recovery, you know, and I agree with your quote so young that, you know, that the healing is not mucking around in the past so much as the numinous experience. Moving forward in recovery is how are you going to be best able to help others like you? And I think that's where this analysis becomes really um, relevant, right? You know, where people are coming from. Like, for instance, Mark Lewis, this guy, this neurobiologist who doesn't think this is a disease, writes this book called The Biology of Desire. And I'm not going to get in the weeds with the brain stuff, but what he shows is with addicts, addicts are just like normal people that they, when they get high, it gets this dopamine thing going. They get pleasure from getting high. That's why people like to get high. I mean, aside from the pain. Yeah. Well, but that's what he points. He says, with an addict, you're getting pain and relief. With a normal person, you're getting mostly just relief. Now, they may be dealing with pain in other ways. Um, and this is where Alexander's pretty process addiction. So you're still left with this thing. So, you know, I am responsible for my recovery, but at what point is my, um, my spiritual growth meant to be an activism to take what I've learned to dismantle the structures that caused the addiction to begin with? Okay, but still we're left with this. Something fucked up about people. And whether you are a Buddhist or a follow the red road or a Christian, there are all these narratives that say, well, there is something about people. You know, there's some relationship to evil and suffering that needs to be addressed. And, and the spiritual traditions are a way of doing that. Um, I know this is long-winded, but real quick, the last thing is, Alexander leaned heavily on this guy named Ignacio Martin Barrow, totally neglected figure in, in, in Western psychology. Barrow was, uh, I think he was a Spaniard by birth. He was a Jesuit priest, and he was pretty much martyred in El Salvador um, with a few other people by the death squad. And he came up with something called liberation psychology. Right. And he said, there's this thing on the one hand that he would call individual sin. He would say, that's speaking to the, the darker part of my nature. Um, violence, competition, greed. But he says, there's also a thing he calls societal sin. And that's when the institutions of the society promote and reinforce those qualities in an individual. And, and we've gotten to the point where not only does that happen, um, 
you rise to the top to the degree that you are more Machiavelli, mm-hmm. right? And then things like pornography and violence actually become, you know, our entertainment, you know, so more that's much more so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd recently just discovered uh, liberation psychology. It seems quite interesting. Um, okay, so it's still, uh, you know, I still have a this thing um, tickling the back of my brain. When we talk about addiction as a way to, um, like for pain relief, you know, psychic pain, physical pain, I still think that for some people, a piece of it is not the pain relief, but the reaching for the numinous experience, you know, yes. like Carl Jung's famous maxim of uh, spiritus contra spiritum. He wrote in a letter to Bill W saying mm-hmm. that uh, we're reaching for the wrong spirit where we've like literalized the spiritual seeking and, mm-hmm. and put it in a bottle, you know? Um, I think like for me, my, my uh, early struggles with substance overuse, I don't know if I was ever an addict, but I sure acted like it. Um, when I had, you know, a major numinous experience, it was like it severed that cord. Uh, it was like an overnight cure or something. I, I mean, it was remarkable and it's not, uh, something I don't know if you can duplicate it or replicate it, uh, but that's the way it happened. So when I then um, stumbled upon Jung and his ideas about addiction, I was like, I think that's what happened to me. You know, I'm I had sure this experience with ayahuasca and it was like, after that, I just, uh, my relationship to alcohol was totally different. You know, I could mm-hmm. have, have a drink just for enjoyment and I uh, wouldn't have to drink until I fell down at four in the morning. You know, it was amazing. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, no, I think you're, you're speaking to it. Um, so this, this ecstasy that we're seeking, which seems to be built in, right? That's a spiritual impulse. Mm-hmm. Um, Rudolf Steiner, you know, when he talks about evil, he, there's there's a cast of characters, but there's two main ones. One is Luciferic, and Luciferic evil is um, it is egotism, but it's also splendid isolation. It's an, it doesn't mean you're alone, but it means you're not really caring about much you are off in this sort of ecstatic realm and enjoying yourself, right? And it's got a lot of beauty to it and so on. And what he says is Lucifer is opposite Ari. Ariman is, is materialism, and they're actually going in two different directions. They work together. And so if you look at addiction, it often starts in this sort of 
this total ecstasy, this splendid isolation. Um, and then at some point, Ariman comes and takes your legs out because he reduces you to an appetite. And now you, it's just a coarse materialism where I have to get the substance. Furthermore, I have to get the money to get the substance just to be okay. Um, so yeah, it, it's a misguided spiritual quest. I mean, I guess and this is this is definitely relevant to the what the what we're talking about. I think one thing that we're seeing now is we're not seeing in culture much discussion of the role of suffering in spirituality. Mm -hmm. See, instead we have when we get too far in what you call the traumadelic world, we're basically assuming that all suffering is bad and needs to be alleviated. We're, we're almost saying that it's no, it's not an inevitable consequence of being human. It's something that, you know, we have technologies to, to get rid of it. And there's, it holds out the promise of some kind of, you know, wholeness. On the other hand, we've got these really rich spiritual traditions that, you know, as Simone Bay said about Christianity, is not about the alleviation of suffering so much as it is about the supernatural use of suffering. So, you know, that's, I think that's part of what's infecting it. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, you know, um, I often say, like, I'm grateful for my suffering for getting bad enough to actually wake me up and start paying attention to what my soul was starving for. And that was a, you know, that was the beginning of my journey was the suffering got bad enough that I finally had to go, okay, I've read the self help books, I've, uh, you know, I've tried the kind of abstinence methods and things like that. Um, I gotta, I gotta seek help elsewhere. And that led me to my first therapist, who was a, a Jungian, a, a, Hill, a James Hillman student. Um, so we worked just with dreams. We didn't talk about my childhood trauma or anything like that. He focused on my dreams. And my dreams started showing me things. Um, and it felt like a reconnection to something really deep within myself. And then he, he, uh, he took me to my first ayahuasca ceremony in the Santo Daimi church. So Christian uh, ayahuasca church. And then I had this reconnection to something outside of me, something greater than myself. And it was like, okay, no more addictive tendencies. Right. I mean, except for the coffee and uh, tobacco, but you know, I can deal with that. But, but there's a couple <laughs> things beyond that, which is one is your suffering. If it goes through that kind of transformation, become a capacity that you will be you will be more soul expansive towards the suffering of other people mm -hmm. as opposed to being locked into this kind of bitterness um the other thing is well suffering's not over i mean you're going to live several more decades and you're going to encounter tremendous suffering whether it's yours or something that you love and we need to have some kind of spiritual soul thing that can work with that. Otherwise, yeah. we're going to just constantly be saying, when I suffer, something's wrong. What can I do to fix it? Yeah. Yeah. The, the way I think about it um, is like we have to 
Well, I think of it in terms of growth. Like we have to expand our concept of who we are in the world. I mean, this is what cosmology and religion can give us, but in a post-religious world uh, where, you know, psychology has become the religion of the masses and psychology is becoming more and more about the individual isolated from culture and everything else, uh, you know, it gets very small and tight. The context becomes uh, very, very small. And so if we can enlarge the context, then the slings and arrows of life aren't going to be uh, so profound uh, in causing suffering, right? Like a larger context yeah. allows, gives suffering. Yes. Yeah, we have the and, capacity and to bear more. Become, they become meaningful. I mean, that, that's why I, I spent this time with this man, Ed Tick, and, you know, his work is just so remarkable because he shows with PTSD in combat that what we call PTSD in Vietnam really doesn't exist. And it's because they have national days of mourning, ritual storytelling. I mean, one of the things that they have that he talked about that I found most fascinating is they have belief systems about how to take care of the soul of someone you killed, you know, what greater trauma could there be? And yet, if I come out of a, out of a tradition that says, no, you can work with them. You can, you can even heal that. Moment. I mean, whether you believe that or not, that's, that's really significant rather than being haunted by this thing for the rest of your days. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's about relatedness. Like, that's what it all seems to come down to, right? Like, relatedness to people in our community, relatedness to the deepest parts of self, the, you know, something larger than ourselves. Um, and it just makes me think about, uh, you know, a lot of the despair, I think, just coming out of a feeling of disconnection and isolation and loneliness, I mean, this seems to be the modern malaise. It, it does. And yet, I also think that even when we have people that are sort of thinking like you and I, and I think there are a lot of us, and I think our numbers are growing, there's still some hard work to be done to come together. And not that we have to hammer out some sort of orthodox consensus, but we really have to be honest with ourselves about what what are we doing and what do we really believe and where do we agree and where, where should the part be, there be a parting of the ways, you know, because there's a lot of, um, Oh, I think your traumatic articles are a perfect example of this. These are like-minded people that are fundamentally at odds about a really crucial point. And that needs to be talked about and sorted out. The political climate is such that those kind of conversations are like really, really hard. Mm -hmm. Well, it's like, you know, with someone, you know, I, I criticize uh, Gabor Mate in one of the articles. And when someone reaches that level of fame and broad acceptance as an expert, it becomes really difficult to criticize them. You know, they become like sacred cows. Yeah. And I and think that especially gets Especially if they have legion of followers and some little bit of cash and Yeah. And like PR agencies and things, right? Like so I think that gets in the way of uh 
having more nuanced conversations about these things where we can be critical and go, okay, I agree with him on this, but the kind of methodology or approach, I think has a lot of limitations and doesn't really help people get beyond the trauma or get beyond the addiction into real health. Because I think even if you identify as an addict, you're still not quite there. You're not, you're not fully recovered, right? No. Well, and, and then, the, yeah, <laughs> I mean, the one thing that really, like, here's a good example of something that I feel like came up in your article that, you know, death definitely just be talked about whenever it's up, is this idea that I am responsible for all my emotions. Mm. I mean, we're seeing that everywhere. That's a bad shit, crazy idea. I mean, that that goes, to me, that flies in the face of, to me, that's a neoliberal idea is hanging out a carrot of a, a certain kind of perfect life is impossible and flies in the face of even common sense psychology. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think I might have mentioned it in the article, but I really think that um, for someone to make a statement like that and really stand behind it, where it's become like a maxim of his training, that we are 100 percent responsible for all of our emotional reactions doesn't matter what someone else is doing our emotions are ours to deal with um that comes from a place of incredible privilege uh, yeah to me in steiner's term that is a luciferic fantasy yeah yeah it's like i can well there is something about it like there's a. Uh, and I think this comes across in the personas that are pushing these kinds of ideas, um, individualistic ideas. There is a kind of uh, a detachment that looks like calm and, uh, you know, I got my shit together, you know. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's like, um, it's not a good detachment. It's like uh, a, a it's depersonalization, it's a dissociation. Yeah. Yeah, and, it, and, it, and not to be—I'm the one saying this, so you don't have to get in trouble. It sounds very culty. It sounds very Nexian, you know. And the fact that there's these connections between land landmark, is it? Mm -hmm. And 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 Dante's crew, hoteling. Yeah. Yep. Um... <laughs> I don't know how much I want to get into it because you know I could just go on and on. Uh, well, I mean, I think what you do is you 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 raise the voice of Jane Tillman as an antidote. I mean, I keep coming back to Hillman um, as like a voice of reason because uh, what he was talking about in the back in the seventies, his critiques of psychology back then, and his you know not one of the things I appreciate about Hillman and. Um, this is something that I always aspire to is follow the critique with a uh, alternative suggestion on how to do things uh, differently um, according to, you know, what I believe is, uh, is beneficial and what's not. And so back in the seventies with his revisioning psychology, he was offering a different approach that I think um, addressed a lot of the kind of dogmatic problems of Jungianism or Freudianism uh, or, um, you know, religiosity, Christianity and things like that. 
so I, I love him. And I think everything he said through the 70s, through the 90s, is incredibly relevant and has become even more kind of urgent in a way, because everything he was talking about with the um, cult of the individual and the focus on the individual in psychotherapy mm -hmm. has just gotten even um, more intensified, you know. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. And if you look at the sort of trajectory of his thinking or even his personal life, he actually kind of lost interest in working with individuals. And he was more interested in putting the shopping mall suicide or TV on the couch. So, you know, he's really speaking to, talking about is that there are these, these, these uh, institutions and dynamics, larger dynamics within culture that are basically starved of soul. Mm -hmm. and, and that's causing yet another way of people experiencing the world, not a good way. I love that. I love it in there too that you you took on. Like now, see, I'm not going to be able to remember the word, but you took on how everyone in this, a lot of people in this wheelhouse get all caught up in the hero's journey for um, Campbell, and so you know we go through these things, but really, ideally, we go through these things to come back to the world uh, more capable and more able to you know better, stronger, bigger, whatever, and. Hillman has this idea, uh, it's a mythical idea, it's called, I think it's called the ne Nekia, N-E-K-I-I-A, and he, that's an underworld journey that you don't come back from, mm -hmm. you know, you, and, and really what that's saying is, you know, you go into the depths of the soul, which is full of gold and monsters, and so on, and that now becomes your, you see the world now from um, from from the underworld and the underworld, you know, to, to my way of thinking, is is also the prison and the hood and the refugee camp and the reservation and the AA meeting. You know, it's the view the view from below. Mm. Mm -hmm. The underworld, yeah. Uh, well, there is the thing too that, uh, like, getting back to how Hillman started to. Um, to practice what he called like a therapy of ideas and and a psychoanalysis of uh, psychotherapy, right? Like subjecting psychology to its own analysis and finding out what were the kind of underlying myths th that were ruling psychology and locating uh, the myth of the child, the myth of the hero as a uh, very predominant um, underlying mythologies. And I think that's Again, it's just become more the case. The more we focus on childhood trauma, the more it constellates the wounded child archetype. And the solution is to take on this heroic journey of overcoming your personal trauma. Um, and, but, you know, what, uh, what doesn't get critiqued is that the hero's journey is like the journey of the puer. It's an adolescent journey. It's an adolescent fantasy. I'm going to go and meet the mentor, going to meet Yoda or Obi-Wan. I'm going to go um, slay the dragon or the dark father. And I'm going to come back a hero and be celebrated yes. rather yeah, than I'm going to come, I'm going to come back as a uh, initiated adult and get to work caring for culture. Yeah, that's exactly right. My underworld journey actually 
gave me capacities that are for the benefit of others and not for my own greater glory. Yeah, yeah like you don't come back just with some gift to give the world just by your, your glow and your shine. Uh, but you come back, you're supposed to come back from an initiation with an obligation. Yes. Which is more like a burden in a way. And I, and I think another thing that's right in there is now, and this speaks to your second article, is there's some sort of, it's not a belief, it's just, it's just what people are doing. They act like anybody can be initiated at any time as they want to. And therefore, I can hang out a shingle as a shaman. You know, and there's no sense that this is, um, this is in Steiner's term, it may be a question of karma and destiny, um, that is some almost invariably a near death experience. It's not something that you should, you could manufacture. And, and not something you would ever sign up for. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, people aren't, you know, people are kind of um, savvy enough now that no, uh, no person of European heritage is going to call themselves a shaman. I mean, very few. There's outliers, right? But they're really so deep into the new age that they're kind of protected in that um, in that soft, mushy bubble of uh, non-judgment. <laughs> but um, others, it's a little more um, insidious. You know, you'll get people who say, I lead rites of passage retreats. And it's like a, a three-day experience. You show up Friday evening, for the orientation, you go through it and you leave Sunday afternoon initiated or having gone through a rites of passage. And uh, it's it's a fantasy. Um, and it is, I think, wrapped up in this, um, the hero's journey, you know? Yeah. And like, I got uh, one under I mean, my belt. It's a big difference between doing that, right? Like, I'm going to go drink Madre two nights in a row stay with these people and there's the, the, the that and versus i'm going to do that and it qualifies me to be something in the world you know but even I, and i'm and i'm very hesitant to call that initiation it's people coming together and having an experience ideally a meaningful one mm -hmm. um, or an entertaining one or an entertaining why not one. why not oh, that's why why do we need meaning? That's such a good point. Like, yeah, a joyful one. Yeah, I talked about this uh, with someone recently who had me on their podcast. Um, there's this idea that uh, that drugs, you know, psychedelics, plant medicines, the medicine, you know, it gets kind of um, more inflated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but something like ayahuasca is is for healing. Like you hear this a lot. Ayahuasca is a medicine for healing. And um, I spent time at a center down in Peru that wasn't a commercial center. It was run by um, a, a native Peruvian guy, Asha Ninkin, healer, who really uh, was doing it to conserve the forest and this um, incredible boiling river that ran through the property to kind of save it from development and then offer healing services to local community. And as a gringo, you can come and stay there, but there's not going to be anybody to translate for you. There's no special meals or anything like that. You just kind of go and take care of yourself, but you get to stay there and then go to the community uh, ayahuasca uh, ceremonies. 
And what I found was that people were like coming from all up and down the river every like Wednesday evening. And it was like a communal gathering, like jungle television. Like people came to have these like wonderful experiences and to sing and listen to others sing. Uh, there was like no vomiting, no psychotic freakouts, no sharing circles, anything like that. And I found it so refreshing. Wow. And after that, I, I, I couldn't do any more ayahuasca ceremonies because after that, it just felt so natural and, and right in a way that I was like, I'm done. I don't want to deal with any of that other bullshit, you know, because I think this is the way to do it. That is really wild because, I mean, I got to... Oh, I mean, that does go against my thing. Like, you better respect her. She's going to bitch slap you and all that. I mean, I have a bit of that. But I I, I hear you. Um, wow. And that sounds like just, you know, community. Yeah, which is healing. Um, which is, we're having which fun. Is the, which is the medicine we need, right? Like, if we're, if we see the bigger picture of, like, dislocation theory, theory, all that, biopsychosocial, all of that, then like, what's the medicine? Well, community, enjoyment, um, you know, culture. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I, I had a friend of mine last night, you know, I just, he just made it so clear that I need to go have some fun. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and like, kind of like fun that I had when I was wild and young. Yeah, you know that everything got so goddamn serious. I never, you know, the idea that the fun is the healing. Yeah, I that's, believe in it. That's fantastic. Yeah, and like so, some of the you know the the biggest figures in the quote unquote healing world are not people I'd ever want to hang out with. You know, like can you imagine Gabor Mate at a party? <laughs> <laughs> like god bless him but not somebody i want to hang with you know or eckhart tolle i don't know maybe you get a couple drinks into eckhart and he he gets really funny or something but uh <laughs> really goofy yeah no i i totally i, I could stand for a lot more of that hmm. you know one thing about that i love about the alcyon center is aesthetically stunning it's not it's not upscale and one of my teaching partners Catherine she is just a host she wants you to sleep well and she wants you to like the food and she knows that the experience will flow out of those things and you know the time we can learn too we got to give people a lot of downtime you know a lot of just kicking mm -hmm. so bad that you're not cramming meaning of Cross, you know, yes, stuffing, yeah, stuffing programming down their throats, and yeah, yeah, just I think like that's one of the things I saw working at uh, an ayahuasca center in Peru that was um, a commercial center and was centered around healing and all of that. I felt like the thing that people talked about the most was like the kind of summer camp for adults part of it, where. Uh, we get to go down. We don't have to worry about cooking or doing the dishes. Um, we get to hang out and do some yoga classes with Brian. And then, you know, after dinner, he'll bring out the guitar and we'll sit around and like play some songs. And like, I would hand the guitar around and we had people from all over the world. And I would say like, Hey, can you sing me a nursery rhyme from, from your childhood? 
and people would like, oh my God. And they they bust out this little song, like a you know, a Finnish nursery rhyme. Oh wow. And it was like, okay, and then tomorrow night we're gonna drink ayahuasca. But like this, this is like building culture, this is building connection, yeah. this is like ease and fun. And um I suspected that maybe that was like some of the real medicine going on. Yeah. A little bit of play. Mm-hmm. I can't, yeah. Otherwise, ah, taking yourself so goddamn seriously, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was a big one for me. Um, some of the experiences I had, like encountering a teacher, UG Krishnamurti, the anti-guru guru, um, getting completely kind of blasted by that. And, uh, you know, the core message of the yoga sutras that I studied for years is basically um, all of your suffering comes from you identifying with this little self. That's where it all comes from. Mm -hmm. And so if you can first do an, uh, a disconnection from that, then you can connect to something greater and your suffering diminishes. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's it or, for me in a nutshell. Your, or, your, or your capacity for meeting a different kind of suffering growth, meaning death itself or the loss of someone that you love more than anything. Yeah. You know, you're going to be able I to can, feel I it more deeply. That's right. You, you can actually feel it more deeply. In some sense, you may even suffer more, but you will, you will uh, metabolize the suffering. Okay, that's, well, yeah. That's, I think, that's like the benefit of, you know, um, this kind of numinous experience or the quote unquote ego death, which uh, I don't think that's really what's I'm happening. So tired of that. No, I don't either. Yeah. But, you know, that kind of experience um, where you stop identifying with the small self and are kind of cast into the expanse, um, that does help you feel more deeply because if, if something comes along that's really painful, you're not your ego's not going to throw up all these defenses because it feels like it's going to be overwhelmed by the the pain, the grief, the sadness, or whatever. And so you can yeah. allow it uh, more space to be felt and experienced, right? Yeah, and, you can you can walk into it. That's it. You're not doing this. You can actually go into it. Yeah, yeah. But I got to tell you, you know, there's times when I when I what I really marvel at at times is. You know, we can get into these these spiritual um, experiences that are pretty pretty dramatic to talk about. You know, but you know, there's this guy Vasily Grossman, who's this Soviet era writer, and he wrote this amazing book called uh, "Life and Fate." And he has this character in there who's just been through it. You know, been through the camps, been through everything. And the guy says, he says, um, kindness makes him believe in God. He says, because the world has done everything it can to destroy kindness, and it can't do it. Hmm. He enumerates all these really extreme scenes where he's all these gestures of kindness. And I, I kind of really love that because, in a way, a gesture of kindness, an unlikely one, is bigger than anything Eckhart Tolle. 
you know? And in a way, it is the sort of fabric that we need to come back to. That, you know, that, our, that we should have an economy of kindness and, and gestures of, of listening, paying attention, respect, and, and laughter. Yeah, fun. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot about the kind of virtue of acceptance. You know, accepting people with all of their idiosyncrasies and, um, you know, whether we see them as faults or not, but just people are funky, you know, and I want to live in a world where there's more funky people, not so many well-adapted um, <laughs> kind of monoculture entities walking around, you know, like I want to live in a, a forest like the forest where I live, where all the trees are funky and different and there's so much variety and all of them are adapted, but they're adapted by becoming more and more unique unto themselves. You know, like that's the adaptation is to like get funky, like, a, a you know, an oak tree wrapping itself around a fence pole. Yeah. You know? yes, that, yes. Yes. That kind of adaptation. Yeah. No, I love that too. I mean, that was my hope. Well, in a way it's been largely realized. I mean, resistance recovery that membership is everything from MAGA hats to old school communists and everything in between. And generally speaking, I've just said a few times, it's never been too bad that we're not going to tolerate any claiming and any of that stuff. And they've been good. They've been really good. And I think they're relieved. Generally speaking, when I put the warning out, I get 50 likes for putting the warning out. Yeah. Thank like uh Sly Stone. Thank you for letting me be myself. Uh, since that, now, you're, now you're talking my time. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This was an excerpt of a longer conversation. If you'd like to listen to the full episode and support the podcast, 
consider becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Thanks.